Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Southwest Wisconsin and much of the state is in the midst of a severe drought, and more than ever, people working in food and farming are talking about the need for agricultural alternatives that can be resilient and regenerative in a changing climate. On today's show, we'll hear about a revolutionary vision for agricultural sustainability that is gaining traction here in Wisconsin and around the world, perennial polyculture. And we'll hear about a new perennial grain called Kernza that conserves soils, improves water quality, and sequesters carbon in the ground to help mitigate climate change. Like wheat, Kernza can be used to make cereal and bread, and Wisconsin's Driftless Brewery has even made beer with it. A multifunctional crop, Kernza can also be grown for high-quality animal forage. Kernza was developed by plant breeders at the Land Institute, a nonprofit organization in Salina, Kansas, focused on developing perennial grains and diverse ecological cropping systems stewarded by a just, caring, pluralistic society that accepts limits. Here to tell us more about the Land Institute's vision, perennial crops, and Kernza, we have two guests today. Lee DeHaan is lead scientist of the Kernza Domestication Program at the Lansden Institute in Salina, Kansas. Welcome to A Public Affair, Lee. Hello, great to be here. And Erica Schoenberger is a graduate student in agronomy at UW-Madison, where she is part of Dr. Valentin Picasso's Forages and Perennial Grains Lab. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. Hi, it's nice to be here. Great to have you with us. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for my guests about perennial agriculture or an experience you'd like to share out in the Wisconsin farm landscape and community, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or reach out to a public affair on Facebook. So we're going to start with the basics here today, uh, thinking about all of you out there who may be wondering, what is a perennial crop? How is it different than the corn, wheat, oats, and soybeans we're used to seeing in the Midwest farm fields? Lee, uh, start with the basics. Tell us about what a perennial crop is and, and what makes it different than those annual crops. Right. So perennial means a plant that can live more than one year multiple years uh, as you drive through, through the agricultural landscape of Wisconsin. Uh, the kind of the differences between the corn and soybean fields and then those grasses that are growing the roadside, which are perennial grasses that uh, dominate areas of vegetation where we're just mowing them. Um, your lawn is, is typically perennial plants and people are very you know familiar with perennial flowers that they often plant. Those, those are the ones you don't have to replant every year. So at the, at the basics, perennial crops are those that will live for multiple years without that annual replanting. And so why is your organization, the Land Institute, so focused on perennial crops? And maybe you could also just go into the bigger picture there of how did agriculture end up being so focused on annual crops? Yeah, that's a that's a very, very large question. It goes back a long time, so 10,000 years to the origin of agriculture, how we ended up growing corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, barley, oats, all these annual crops that uh, form about 75% of the human diet. Um, these grains are essential to the survival of modern humans because they contribute so much to our diet. Um, we ended up with them. Uh, you know, it's, when you look back into ancient history, it's hard to, to tell the, the exactly true story. We, we have to make our, our best guesses, but um, it's easy to imagine that early agriculturalists were uh, seeing wild annual plants, which typically have a lot more seed than those perennials. Uh, and they started harvesting them. And uh, with that annual harvest and collection of seed and some starts falling in the ground and then they start scratching in the dirt to plant some more. Um, we know early on people were harvesting perennial plants as well. So perennials and annuals are both used, but the annuals didn't get to go through that. The perennials didn't get to go through that annual cycle of, of re restoration of, of replanting and 
um, they just existed and people didn't have to, to mess with them. And therefore they never really got domesticated by accident. They just stayed being the way they were. Whereas as you harvest annuals and begin to replant them, the seeds get bigger. You get things like non-shattering seed that doesn't fall on the ground. The hulls that hold the seed in um, were bred out of them. And certainly early on, it was an accidental event that happened and humans took advantage of it. So we ended up with all of these plants that were annuals were what became the basis of most civilizations. You know, we do have some perennials that are very important. Olives are, are a big part of ancient civilizations, grapevines, uh, apple trees. Uh, there are perennials that are very important, but none of those perennials are what we call herbaceous plants. They're all woody. Uh, you know, grapes have a woody vine and apple trees, uh, olive trees all have a, a large trunk. And we kind of speculate that those early generations of, of selection um, could happen in these perennial large trees because people were starting to clone them. They knew how to take a graft out of one big tree and stick it on another one. Um, that was a pretty easy thing to domesticate large uh, perennial trees, but perennial grasses, um, you know, very hard to propagate. You'd have to have a metal shovel really to dig them up and start moving them around. And, you know, that just didn't happen uh, in the way that we did with a large trees like uh, those sorts of perennials. So we end up with no no domesticated perennial grain crops. All of our grain crops are, uh, are annual plants that need this retilling re all the time. Um, people, uh, you know, discovered genetics and breeding in the early 1900s. And there was a project in Russia being in the 1920s to develop perennial wheat. They learned that they could cross perennial grasses with domesticated wheat. And they thought, hey, maybe we could get wheat. We don't have to replant. And they were they're trying to find a dual use crop that could be grazed and used for grain uh, to reduce the farmer's cost of replanting and also um, you know, be able to use it for grazing in, during the winter. Uh, they didn't really have the tools that we have in modern genetics now. They didn't even know about chromosomes or genes or any of these things. So that kind of fizzled out and uh, it's been a modern resurgence of interest in uh, perennials. And part of that comes with the discovery and, and development of modern genetic tools that allow us to do things we could never do before. Um, but also uh, came with the acknowledgement and realization of the problems in annual grain agriculture. We didn't initially really aware of a lot of things happening. Of course, we know about soil erosion is a problem. Um, you start tilling the hillsides of Wisconsin. I'm sure folks are familiar with driving in the country and seeing a big gully washing away. And, and that's the topsoil that's essential to production. Um, and as that happens, we've lost the ability to produce uh, grain and feed ourselves you know, into the indefinite future. So um, that and, and things like water quality problems coming out of agriculture. So as, as we fertilize our annual grain crops, the roots are very small and they can't take up that nitrogen fertilizer. That's essential to have, but it, it, it dissolves in the soil and goes down into our drinking water. So we have contaminated wells all throughout the corn soybean belt where people are no longer able to drink their water. So acknowledgement of some of these really serious large scale problems and realizing that even cover cropping and even trying to reduce fertilizer applications, um, all these things have trade-offs and uh, challenges about them. So very good to work on these solutions, but um, has opened the, the question of, is there a, a better long-term solution out there? And um, the Land Institute started here in 1976 in Kansas, and our founder, uh, co-founders, Wes and Dana Jackson. Uh, Wes Jackson was out in the prairie here in Kansas and just, you know, pondering, how can you have cattle that are being harvested off of this prairie ecosystem for um, hundreds of years, really bison before that for thousands of years, and the system is working very well. The soil is actually building, getting deeper, uh, better quality. Whereas in 10 or 15 years, 50 years certainly of annual wheat production in central Kansas, the soil has lost about half of its organic matter, much of its topsoil. Um, it's not a sustainable system. It has to be fertilized to keep it going. Um, and so you know, what's the difference there? Why, why is one system, why can we graze cattle for thousands of years on, on prairie, but uh, just a few decades of annual grain production and soon that soil is is not able to provide uh, the same sorts of yields anymore. And you know, he kind of settled on two things being 
the, the perenniality of those plants um, and the fact that they're a lot more diverse um, in the prairie. So uh, the perenniality we've already talked about, just that the fact that those roots are there year round, the, the grasses are growing above ground, rainfall that's that's landing on the soil first hits a, a grassy mat that absorbs the energy of that rain falling. Um, the, the roots that are in the soil develop a very open structure so the water can go into the soil instead of running off of it. Uh, and so you, you see that in uh, prairie perennial systems, you only get very, very low uh, soil erosion, even on steep hillsides, uh, whereas catastrophic erosion is typical on sloping hills of, of annual grain crops. Um, so that is along with the idea that um, single crops by themselves um, really don't contribute all the functions that are, that are needed necessarily. And often as we've had just a single um, crop or just a couple of crops or a few varieties that dominate a whole state, um, if one disease comes along, it can really annihilate that, that whole area. Um, one of the big advantages to intercropping is, is nitrogen. So we've talked about how nitrogen can contaminate groundwater, but nitrogen is essential nutrient. It's needed to make proteins in plants and we need it in our own body to make proteins. So it's it's a, a toxin when it's just nitrate or nitrite flowing into your well, but when it's in your proteins, uh, it's you gotta have it. So, um, and plants cannot grow without it. Um, so it's it's really after water, the biggest limit to how much nitrogen is available. And, one of the ways that nitrogen gets in ecosystems is legumes, so plants that have uh, in the bean family, your alfalfa or clovers, soybeans, white clover, lawn, soybeans, yeah, all these things. Um, they have the ability to work with a bacteria in their roots to take that nitrogen out of the atmosphere, you know, into and split the bond between the nitrogen and turn it into nitrate the plants can use. So it's a really difficult bond to break. It takes a lot of energy. It's a triple bond between two nitrogen elements in nitrogen gas. And so only lightning in, in you know, thunderstorms, maybe your lawn looks a little greener after a thunderstorm. It's probably because of the, the bonds being broken by the, the super high charge power and temperature of, of lightning uh, can break that bond or it's done you know, through these bacteria that have just the right uh, catal catalysts or you know, chemicals that will help break that bond uh, very, very slowly, but at lower energy and temperature. So um, that's a key part of, of ecosystems all over the world. We'll see that there's uh, legume trees in the tropics and there's legume plants all over the prairie. And that's a major source of the nitrogen coming into those systems. And so we also want to, you know, we do the same thing with soybean and corn, uh, cycling them. So in a perennial system, we were looking, hoping for ways to integrate these legumes with grasses or composites, sunflowers, you know, other species that can work together with the, the nitrogen being available out of those, those legumes. Um, also because those legumes have a lot of nitrogen, they can do something unique, which is make a lot of protein. So you'll, you'll notice that, of course, beans have a lot more protein, soybeans have a lot more protein than uh, wheat or, or corn does because those plants have a lot of nitrogen available. So in our diets, we also need diversity in our diets to provide uh, oils, fats, uh, proteins, carbohydrates, you know, all of them. So diversity is a really essential part of our food system, as well as uh, you know, the, the fields that we're going to grow them in. So those two points, perenniality and diversity, are kind of the, the founding uh, situation for the Land Institute. And um, perennial crops are great for sustainability, but if you try to go out into prairie or maybe um, try to eat some of the grains from brome grass growing along the road, you'll realize that there's just not much seed there. Uh, so uh, that's that's where plant breeding comes into play. We, we have to coax these plants to produce grain kind of for the first time ever. They, they've made very, very little perennial seeds in the past, but um, through breeding, we're increasing the seed size and all these essential traits, turning them into grain crops. And of course, you know, it took our ancestors thousands of years, and we're going to try to do it in a couple of decades. So it, we're, we're sprinting, um, but we're still have a ways to go. We can talk about where we're at, but yeah, um, yeah. not to let anyone think, you know, we're, we're not arrived yet. 
So it's a work in progress. So we're going to talk about the story of, of one of those crops that's gaining attention, Kernza, here in a minute, and uh, we'll get back to that broader vision of perennial polyculture as well. But let me reintroduce you both first. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with scientist Lee DeHaan from the Land Institute and Erica Schoenberger from UW-Madison about perennial agriculture and the new crop Kernza. If you'd like to join the conversation today, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Erica, we're going to turn to you next. Um, you're in this lab that's really focused on working on this new crop, Kernza, that the, was developed at the Land Institute in response to this problem of annual agriculture that Lee DeHaan was just describing for us. And uh, Kernza was uh, uh, based on, is, is a plant, perenni- uh, wheatgrass, right, uh, that mm-hmm. is, uh, the Land Institute identified as a potential candidate for being a widespread perennial crops. So tell us a little bit more about Kernza. Let's talk about it. Describe this plant and its benefits. And you're out there in the field working with it. What is being around Kernza like and what does the field of Kernza look like? Yeah, wow. Well, uh, I've been working with Kernza for the last three years now in Wisconsin. Um, For my master's work, I worked with it a lot on research stations and now moving out to work with lots of farmers in Wisconsin who are trying Kernza, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, Kernza is a very cool plant. Uh, it's growing year round in the winter, you know, it's mostly covered in snow in Wisconsin. Um, but in the spring when, you know, lots of fields are bare and there's, um, bare soil exposed, the Kernza is already growing, um, and is nice and dark green. Um, this time of year, it's about, uh, maybe three to four feet high and it's starting to flower right now in Wisconsin, which is really beautiful. So if you live close to the West Madison Research Station or the Lancaster Research Station, um, you can go see the fields of Kernza that are there. They're probably flowering right now. These really beautiful little little yellow flowers that are on the Kernza. Um, and we will, in a few weeks, maybe three weeks, we'll start harvesting um, the Kernza at the research plots. And the farmers around Wisconsin might wait a little bit longer so they can combine the grain. But early August, they'll probably start to harvest. And then it will regrow again in the fall and and farmers and us at the research station can take another cut of forage harvest um, to feed to livestock. So it's a very, very cool plant. I love working with Kernza. Uh, so that was a beautiful picture there. Tell us a little bit more before we talk. turn back to Lee and the progress of breeding with Kernza. Tell us a little bit more about what your lab there at UW-Madison is working on, um, broadly speaking. Sure. Yeah, so um, we do a lot of agronomy work with Kernza. Um, so there are, there's, I believe, six, six or seven of us that are working on different aspects of Kernza agronomy. So uh, I've been working with yield decline issues over time. So as Lee explained, Kernza is a perennial, so it keeps coming back year after year after year. Um, but the longer it grows, the more it competes with itself and it, and uh, the fields can get really dense with um, individual plants and tillers, which are like the, the things that come off the crown of the plant. Um, and so the Kernza can outcompete itself and then the seed yields start to decline or the grain yields tend to decline. Um, so we work with different agronomic management practices to try to maintain green yields over time. Uh, that looks like varying levels of nitrogen, potassium, or um, uh, phosphorus fertilizers. Um, it looks like uh, thinning rows of Kernza stands using deep tillage or using chemical herbicides to help reduce interspecific competition. Um, we have a PhD student working on uh, optimal termination strategies for Kernza um, for people who are integrating Kernza into their crop rotations. Uh, so figuring out what are the most effective ways to terminate and replant uh, soy or corn or something else in the Kernza. 
Um, there's a large scale project funded by the Kernza CAP grant that's over uh, six sites around the country. Um, and that there's a, a large research study at Arlington at the research station um, in Arlington, Wisconsin. And that's looking at a whole bunch of different, different aspects, but that's another um, uh, fertility and uh, nitrate leaching and I don't know all of the parts, but it's lots of things. And then there's also um, intercropping studies going on in our lab. So we're looking at different legume, what, what's the optimal legume for intercropping with Kernza in Wisconsin. Um, so those fields are really cool because you have Kernza with alfalfa or red clover, white clover, bird's foot trefoil. Uh, lots of really beautiful flowering, or they're not always flowering, but when they are, they're very beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of trials going around. The main places are West Madison, Arlington, and Lancaster Research Stations with UW-Madison. Mm -hmm. So if you live close by, stop over and you can see the fields of Kernza that are there. That's that's great to know and good to get a sense of all the, it sounds like all kinds of varied work going on on the crop to bring this crop to more and more farmers' fields um, here locally. Lee, we'll turn back to you now to tell us a little bit more about this process of um, breeding the plant. It's an ongoing process. As you mentioned earlier, you know, plant breeding usually has taken humans thousands of years to produce a crop plant through uh, selection. Uh, the Land Institute is really trying to speed up this process. So we, it's a really remarkable story of a, a crop that was first harvested large scale in 2010. Is that correct? I saw the, the timeline you had there. And now is is growing in farmers' fields and is making its way into food products. We'll talk a little bit more about food products and, and taste in a little bit, but how did the Land Institute speed up this process of plant breeding so fast and, and how is the plant, uh, its use being promoted? Right, so speeding up is a really key thing. Uh, people often say to me as a plant breeder, while well, you're working on a project that's gonna take decades, you must be really patient. And I say, always say, no, plant breeders are, are very impatient. They always, they're always looking for a way to go faster. So initially we started work here in Palenistine in about 2003. Um, the work actually started before that uh, with Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania and then USDA in New York. Um, went on from 85 to about 2000 and we picked it up after that. Um, essentially we were just growing thousands of plants in the field looking for the best ones and then intermate them and get seed from those, plant them out again. And that was taking you know, three years per generation of from seed to seed, uh, that, which was still going pretty fast for a perennial. Uh, but then we looked for other ways to accelerate and the, the most high tech way we're currently using is to, we've actually sequenced the genome of the species, which was no small task. It has a huge genome, many times larger than the human genome. Uh, but there's been a really advancement in that technology and the cost has come down significantly. Uh, so that's the tool that's now available. And we've been able to do what's essentially similar to if you were to have your DNA tested by 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Uh, if you send in your DNA, they can tell you probably about how tall you are and about what your, your eye color is and what diseases you might or may not get. Uh, and how do they do that? They, they have the DNA from lots of other people, right? So having gotten DNA from probably thousands of other individuals and tracked their phenotype, we, we'd say, so their appearance, their disease history, they can now make a genetic model and predict to you uh, what you might get as you get older. And uh, we do the same thing with plants now. So instead of waiting until they grow in the field, we can start with plants that are only two weeks old they're just little seedlings. You take one leaf off, put it in a little tube and do this with thousands of plants, send them for DNA sequencing, get the data back within a couple of weeks. And then we can say, well, out of these thousands of plants, here's a hundred that are really good based on they're gonna have bigger seed, they're gonna have better yields. And we can quickly get them to intermate, do it again. And so now we're doing a generation every six months or two generations per year, which is six times faster than we used to be going. So that's, um, it's working really well, and, and we you know, we think it's going to allow us to have a really domesticated crop 
in you know, decades instead of a century. Or when I really started the work, I, I did believe this was this was a real back burner project because we thought it was going to be at least a century to have something useful. Uh, but this revolution in what we can do is, has really changed the timeline for us and made it a lot more accessible in, in the near term. I want to be clarified here that using the genome as, as knowledge is not uh, the same thing as genetic transformation or making a GMO. So it's not like we're taking genes out of another species. Um, it's, it's really just the same thing as it's, it's no more change in the plant than you are getting changed if you spit in a vial and send it in. It's just a, a way of knowing what genes are in the plant, not actually going in and tinkering with them. Yeah, thanks for that that clarification because it's an important one. And I want to um, have uh, everyone listening also understand what it exactly is you're trying to accomplish when you do this breeding work. You're trying to make the seed size larger, right? So this is a grass, intermediate wheat grass, and in order for it to be viable as a crop, uh, we need we need more stuff, right? In that seed, more nutrients, exactly. basically, right? Exactly. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so there's lots of ways to get more yield. We need more yield per acre. Uh, right now, people can grow it. Farmers are growing it. But with yields that are you know, like 20% of well, wheat crop in, in many areas, uh, the price has to be substantially higher, even though there's reduced costs. But uh, we want this to be competitive in terms of production and therefore cost with other annual crops. So, so the solutions to these large-scale regional problems, such as erosion and and water contamination that those require really landscape solutions which yeah. means we need a crop that can be grown in a lot of areas and still feed people which means we have to get the yield up and so we have a real imperative to do that um, any which way we we can by breeding and, and as you mentioned seed size is one way so you can have bigger seeds or you can have more seeds and uh, we want to do both of those things and then you can have seeds that you actually get into your combine into your bin versus falling on the ground that's another way to get yield uh, very important thing. Um, there's losses in cleaning that happen with, with seed. And so having the seeds clean more easily means that when it goes into a, a facility to, to get clean seed out of uh, out of the rough harvested grain that the farmer brings in, uh, you lose a lot less. So all those are ways to get at yield and they're all important uh, breeding targets for us. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with scientist Lee DeHaan from the Land Institute and Erica Schoenberger from UW-Madison about perennial agriculture and the new crop Kernza, which Lee DeHaan was just describing there for you. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So we were just talking about the seeds themselves there. Erica, um, have you um, done any uh, experimentation with these seeds as a food or baking with them? Or have you seen other people working with it to make stuff, to make food? Yes, both. <laughs> okay, tell um, us about it. I, I uh, Yeah, I really I like doing or sourdough experiments. Um, and so I enjoy mixing kernza in with my uh, regular like bread flour to make sourdough. Um, kernza flour has a lower gluten content than like annual wheat flour does. So I usually mix about like a, a third by weight of kernza flour and the rest just like typical bread flour. Um, and that is fantastic. I share it with my friends and they, they say like, did you put like, did you add like honey or cinnamon or something to it to like make it a little sweeter? And, and I don't, it's just, you know, salt and sourdough starter and, and bread or, and flour. Um, but the Kernza has like a, a little bit of a sweeter kind of nutty flavor. Um, and it makes fantastic bread. And I know Madison sourdough, um, they don't have Kernza bread that they sell regularly, but just a few, I think a few months ago, they had a promotional day where they sold a lot of Kernza sourdough loaves that were also fantastic. So those, those Kernza days pop up here and there. So if you pay attention, you can get some. Um, and yeah, made Kernza pancakes, Kernza cookies. Um, our our postdoc in our lab, Priscilla Pinto, makes fantastic Kernza apple cake, um, and she uses yeah Kernza. Anyway, we have a lot of field days, um, 
where we spend all day long working outside as a lab and we often make Kernza treats <laughs> to eat in the middle of the day to get our energy up. But, um, and there's, yeah, there's lots of vintage brewing company. I don't know if they still have it on tap, but they did um, within the last few months. It's called Dequester. Uh, that's a Kernza beer um, that is from a Kernza field out in Ridge or uh, near Tower Rock, um, Wisconsin. Um, and that's also wonderful. So yes, lots of, one of the perks of working with Kernza is there's so many people experimenting and we always get to try all of the experiments. They're fantastic. And is there infrastructure for buying and selling, finding the flour? Are there mills that are set up and regularly milling it? Um, what's the landscape for the food system of Kernza look like in Wisconsin or, or in the upper Midwest right now, generally, Erica? Um, yeah, so there is a perennial pantry and sustainer grain are the two main um, places that you can easily buy Kernza. Um, those are both, you can just look at their websites and they both have wholesale Kernza, um, Kernza, lots of Kernza products like noodles and crackers and um, pancake mix and that kind of stuff. Um, so those are definitely the two most successful routes for the general public to buy Kernza products. Um, and in terms of that's actually uh, one of the barriers right now for production is that th there's a so there's a co-op in Minnesota, I believe it's called, uh, you might know Lee, it's Perennial, Perennial Promise. Promise. Yeah, Perennial Promise Co-op. So that is a co-op that Kernza, or for Kernza growers, um, but that's in Minnesota. We don't have one in Wisconsin. Um, so that is one of the barriers right now for production is being able to get the Kernza processed and sold into um, a consistent market channel. Uh, so I don't know, Lee, you might have more to say about that too. Um, but yeah. Yeah, Lee, tell us a little bit more about uh, the obstacles for farmers adopting Kernza and then as Erica was saying, the, the broader food system. Yeah, I mean, on the farmer side, it starts with establishment. So when, when farmers are going to plant something, they need to be able to establish it. Uh, seed is now uh, available. There was initially a period where it was hard to find enough seed. Uh, now there's, there's a pretty good seed supply, but then uh, the issue of the, the cost of the seed and then the risk that you have in that to that if it doesn't establish. So every crop has some establishment problems, but smaller seeded crops tend to have more problems than larger. So uh, it has a fairly small seed. That means that sometimes if the rain doesn't come at just the right time or in the right way, it can be difficult to get established. Um, then there's managing weeds in the first year. One of the great things about perennials is that they tend to compete really well with the weeds. And this is what you see with, once you have a perennial grass established, you know, along the roadside, sure there's, there's weeds coming up in there, but if you mow it off every year, eventually kind of the perennial grasses will kind of establish a nice math that excludes weeds effectively. Um, but, but perennials have a, often a slower start. So they've got this period of time in which weeds are going to be more competitive than they will in your annual uh, field. So that is something that farmers have to work through. Sometimes they pay or mow the first, the first year if the weeds are too bad and wait for a cutting the second year. Um, and then uh, just you know, knowing everything about a new crop, there's just so much to learn, right? There's a big learning curve of, do you have the right equipment and do you know what time to harvest it? And uh, do you need to direct harvest combine or should you swap it, lay it on the ground to dry first? And just a lot to learn for everybody who gets into it. So that it's definitely a barrier to, to entry for farmers. It's just that, that period to learn. And, but it's great to have a number of farmers scattered all over the country that are trying it at at a small scale that are developing that that knowledge and hopefully they'll be able to pass it on to others around them as they as they learn and discover what works for their area because it can often be different uh, what works in kansas is not what works in wisconsin for instance i enjoyed looking on the kernza website um all of you out there can go ahead and just google uh kernza and the first thing that will pop up is um 
a website devoted to the crop. It's a trademark crop. And the Lancet, Land Institute has put together this a website with incredible resources. And some of those resources are about the food system. And tell us a little bit more, Lee, about the um, also difficult task of trying to create public awareness and get um, food companies on board and who has gotten on board. Uh, what's that process been like? Yeah, it's, it's been exciting. It's, it's been quite a trip for me. I mean, I, I started on this before anyone heard of it. Um, we named it, came up with that name, as you said, a trade, trademark name. We did that because we only had intermediate wheatgrass as the name, and people were telling us they weren't putting that on a bread bag or a side of a beer can. Uh, we needed something catchier than that. Mm -hmm. So this name, we made it up from nowhere, essentially. Hoped it sounded like a grain. It was catchy with a Z in it, so K-E-R-N-Z-A, and um, hoped that that would be memorable and, and people could could learn about it that way. Um, you know, the whole work, all of this, including developing those markets and the breeding work and developing how to grow it, as Eric is doing, like all these things take a lot of time and, and investment. Uh, it's been a lot of public research investment at universities largely. And, and there's kind of a catch-22 there, right? Because if nobody knows about this thing, then nobody's going to fund it because it just seems too weird. And that's where I was in 2001 when I started the Land Institute. It was the only place in the world really to work on something like this. Um, it was hard to get resources because everyone thought it was just too new and too different and nobody did it. So it you know, didn't have much credibility. And over time, you know, as awareness grows, you can do that. Um, and getting this, this crop to market has been a really great in terms of awareness to be able to tell people, here we are on the radio talking about Kernza. And you know, I couldn't have imagined that in, in, in 2001, that, that that time would come where the public would be starting to learn about perennial crops. Um, and it's only because people are eating it. And you know, there's a, a beer can that has a little story on the side about why perennials are important. Um, as that public awareness grows, then we can get public support uh, to stand behind the efforts to do the, the work that's needed. Um, you know, it's because it's decades long, uh, private companies really can't jump into that. And it's just the perfect role for public universities to do something that's in the public interest. Uh, we all need to eat. We all need, we want our landscapes to be healthy. We want to be able to go out and, and fish and hunt and uh, drink our water. And so farmers care about this. Farmers need to be able to protect their soil. Um, it's it's really in, in all of our best interest to try to find ways to produce food for us that doesn't undermine the sustainability of the system. And you know, we've, we've just been kind of trapped in this annual system. We, we, we are, and we have to find ways out of it. And um, the exciting thing is that there's collectively, we can, uh, we now have the ability to do it. And it's just a matter of getting those resources together and using our public institutions for public good again. You know, they've been a bit privatized by uh, once all of our crops became very private industry focused, um, it's the, the funding for agronomy departments has kind of dried up. And so now there's a, a moment for these public institutions again to stand up and say, hey, we have a we have a great solution to to these challenges that we're facing as humanity, including carbon sequestration in soils that um, you know, we, we know how to do it. It's just we need to work on it and we we need you all to stick with us for a period of time. It's, it's not going to be done in two years. It's going to be a, a couple of decades at least. So um, it's an exciting time to be a part of. It's a great reminder, Lee, about that historical role of the land-grant universities like UW-Madison. Um, and as you say, this public good that uh, they have a renewed opportunity here to fulfill and, and reach and about the value of investing in those programs uh, to feed us and to create healthy landscapes. Like you said, you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with scientist Lee DeHaan from the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, and Erica Schoenberger from UW-Madison about perennial agriculture and the new crop Kernza. There's still time to give us a call. If you'd like to join the conversation, share a question or an observation about agriculture and perennial agriculture, you can call us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So let's turn toward the bigger picture here in the last 
quarter hour, and we'll, we'll go back to you, Lee, first to talk about the future of perennial crops and perennial polyculture more broadly now. You just published a paper with many international collaborators arguing that uh, investing in developing perennial crops is crucial for the human future. Why is this so important? Um, you've talked about that to some extent, but we can get into other crops as well, not just Kernza, but perennial rice, wheat. And how do you see this being achieved? Yes, exactly. It's, it's, as I said, it's an exciting time to be a plant breeder and an agronomist because you know, we have these totally new opportunities before us. Um, and the, the number of crops that can be worked on is, is probably without end. We, we have to find ones to start with. And um, one of those was perennial rice. Interestingly, it was a project started by the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines back in the 90s. And uh, they were targeting upland rice. So there's around a million acres or more of, of upland rice where people are not growing in patties, but it's highly eroding hillsides where it's slash and burn and quickly erodes. Uh, so the idea was to get a perennial plant to hold the soil while you can still harvest rice. Uh, that project due to budget cuts and things uh, was terminated and didn't continue, but the seed went to China and at the line of suit, one of the roles we've uh, fulfilled has been trying to track down projects on perennial grains around the world and make sure that they keep going in certain ways. So um, try to find a way to, to make sure that they don't fall away if someone retires or the funding's lost momentarily. And uh, that was the case with perennial rice. We were able to uh, track down the researcher who moved to China, begin to fund their lab to help them to restart the perennial rice program in China, uh, beginning in the around 2007. And um, really, you know, by 15 years later, they had perennial rice in China, which now yields the same as annual rice uh, with uh, four years of harvest or eight cuttings, so eight separate crops. Um, with no distinguishable change in the, the yield of the perennial rice or just annual rice. So uh, yeah, that also was shown to have, in a recent publication, to have carbon sequestration benefits in the soil below uh, the perennial rice as there's more roots and they're you know, growing year round. That's the, the pump of carbon from carbon dioxide through photosynthesis moves into the plant, moves down below into the roots, goes through some transformations of bacteria and fungi and eventually becomes part of the, the soil carbon that's stored long term which does all kinds of great things for the soil it holds more water it holds more nutrients it makes the structure better so that water can come in and the roots can grow more easily in it and soil carbon is just so important for for agriculture but it's also so important in that we're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere where it's causing trouble and putting it in the ground where it does good. So it's a, a no-brainer project uh, to do this, that we want to get more carbon into the soil. Everyone's talking about that, right? And so the issue is that the, the conduit is basically uh, long, deep roots that are you know, present more often in the soil. So perennials are fantastic at that. And perennial rice has demonstrated that, uh, but also very importantly for farmers, after that first year where the expenses were the same because it's just like annual rice you have to plant it the first year but after that there was about a 50 percent savings on uh, expenses for the farmer because they're not buying seed they're not buying herbicides as much they're not um, you know doing all the hand transplanting that they would normally have to do so the, the huge labor and and cost savings is a major driver for the program in, in china now um, a great it's like case study of uh, showing what can be done. And beyond that, we're looking at, you know, moving hopefully perennial rice into Africa and other locations where it's really needed. Uh, perennial sorghum, I don't think there's much grain sorghum produced in, in Wisconsin, but if you drive west through Nebraska and Kansas, you'll see lots of, looks like really short corn with funny looking tassels on it, which hold the seed. That's grain sorghum. And it's an African crop. It still feeds a lot of people in Africa. And uh, it has a perennial relative that we've crossed it to. And now there's a, a project to move uh, perennial sorghum into Africa. It's not going to take very long if we can just get the, the funding to do it. And also perennial grain sorghum for the U United States. Work on perennial legumes. Um, we've just made up a new name, perennial baki bean, for uh, a, a new perennial legume, which we hope to have 
uh, good evidence that it's it's edible. Um, we've been eating it, but uh, until we bring it to the market, we need a little bit more evidence for that. But, um, it's it's going to it's really exciting to be able to come out with things that humans have never eaten before. Uh, but it, there's there are some barriers in the system to doing that. What's this bean look and taste like? Uh, it's like a, a very small bean, uh, a white. You know, it's like a very small white bean. It has a bit of a beanie taste to it, or pea taste to it. Um, but Onobrichus visifolia would be the, uh, the scientific name, but it's been used as a forage crop uh, in the past. So potentially also combinable in a polyculture or diverse system with perennial grains? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the common name is sainfoin, uh, which it's not grown in, in, in Wisconsin really at all at this point. But... Uh, yeah, so so there's a there's a whole lot of potential crops out there, uh, especially as you go into the tropics. There are so many perennials that could be domesticated and used. Uh, so we're we're picking off. We hope are the easy ones to to have a proof of concept of what can be done. But uh, perennial wheat uh, is is very exciting. Where we're crossing Kernza intermediate wheatgrass with wheat uh, has lots of genetic kind of complications to that, and you know way beyond the ability to discuss here. But um, you can end up with something that looks and tastes a whole lot more like a wheat plant in terms of how it grows and the plumpness of the seed uh, by using genes from the wheat and kind of a shortcut to a real wheat-like crop. Uh, so that's there's just so many potential ways to go uh, if we just get the funding to support those grain, per, grain breeding programs. These are such hopeful stories in many ways that what you're describing is a really hopeful moment in agriculture. And as you said, plant breeding for really reinventing a system that is one of the most profound ways that humans impact the earth. Right. Um, Erica, what drew you to, you know, stake your life at this point on come to Madison, first do a master's degree and then a Ph.D. on on this plant? Kernza, what are you hoping for? in uh, your own life, but more broadly, um, what do you want to see happen in agriculture with this plant? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're hearing from Lee and what you just said about this is so hopeful and this is exciting and this is a really cool moment to be part of this story. That's why I got into perennial agriculture. And um, I used to work with elementary school kids and teach hands-on environmental ed and, you know, working with these kids and like kids just get so excited about recycling and composting and like all of these things that I cared so much about. Um, and I was like, what can I be like really excited about that I can help uh, move forward in the world in terms of sustainability and carbon sequestration and all this stuff. And um, I was working on a permaculture farm called Echo in Florida and Lee's brother was my supervisor and uh, Lee came for a visit and I heard about Kernza while Lee was there and and um, because I don't like the Florida heat very much I was like I'm gonna move north and work with Kernza instead because <laughs> there's so much uh, so much really cool perennial agriculture options in tropical climates um, so that's how I got into it with in Florida and tropical climates um, but I decided long term that the temperate temperate region is much better suited. Um, but yeah, I loved working with Kernza for my master's. I have no desire to stop working with Kernza. So moving into my PhD now and working with farmers um, and doing on-farm research and helping to try to address some of those barriers that we talked about earlier with adoption um, by helping to create more of a farmer network where uh, we just have good information flow and communication and farmers can communicate well with one another. Um, and I plan to work as a professor afterwards, um, probably mostly with undergrad students and would love to continue on farm research in, in that aspect as well. Um, but sort of I'm, spreading I'm the gospel the of perennials sorry <laughs> yeah exactly i love yeah a perennial agriculture absolutely love it i would be shocked if i move out of that realm but, yeah. you mentioned doing the on-farm research right now um we have a little mm -hmm. bit of time left tell us more about the responses from farmers that you're seeing to uh kernza and their interest in perennial grains more broadly 
Yeah, I think a lot of excitement. Um, it's been cool. I feel like the farmers that I've come across that are interested uh, have heard about Kernza through uh, a show or the PBS Wisconsin did a special on Kernza in Wisconsin last year. Um, so people have seen that or just heard about Kernza through different networks and are excited because, you know, farmers care about uh, water quality and their soil health and and farmers are seeing the impact of climate change so clearly on their fields and with their crops um, and want to participate in these things that can help help us moving forward. Um, so I've yeah, I've just had a lot of excitement and a lot of uh, lots of questions like how do we plant this? How does this work? How do I get seed? Where do I sell it? You know, all of these kind of things. Um, which is interesting to be able to help, yeah, help connect people with the experts who know who know these things. And I know some things, I don't know everything. So um, anyway, it's been really cool. Uh, very friendly, kind people that are just, they care about the world, they care about their community, and they want to participate in this perennial story too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Lee, uh, as we're moving towards the end here, um, what resources should people who want to find out more about Kernza and perennial agriculture turn towards? Yeah, definitely. As you mentioned, the Kernza.org website is a great place to go to learn more. The Land Institute uh, website is also has a lot of connections to perennial agriculture, especially perennial growing agriculture. Um, I, yeah, there's there's a lot of places to jump off from there, I think, to, to find more. And uh, I encourage you to go out and try one of these products. Uh, I know that their Tattersall Distillery made a Kearns of Whiskey. I, I imagine it's all sold out, but um, maybe there's another chance. You know, keep your eye out for Kearns of products when they come around. Uh, give them a taste and, or a drink and see what you think. And then finally, I want to re-emphasize that, that big picture of what's at stake here. Why should people uh, care about perennial agriculture and perennial crops? And especially as we go into what looks like a rapidly accelerating uh, kind of erratic climate. Yeah. Perennials have these big, deep roots that are hopefully there year round that can hopefully weather at least episodic uh, climate events where it comes to uh, periodic droughts, hot periods, uh, wet periods and things like that. Um, I would caution us that it's, you know, this is not a panacea to everything, certainly. Um, we we hope that there's opportunities, but there's also a lot of uh, unique challenges to, to perennial agriculture. So uh, as we look at a changing climate, uh, we, we hope that these plants will be uh, somewhat buffered against those stresses in ways that annual crops are not. Uh, but it's it's definitely not a solution to the the entire solution to the problem and so um we really have to be thinking about broader uh approaches to those those big challenges uh, of the of climate change over time uh, but the the solutions are, are not single right we have to work on lots of different things we have to work in all of the areas that we can and in agriculture uh, perennials are a great way to to work towards climate solutions whether it's uh, mitigation uh, whether it's taking more CO2 out of the, the atmosphere or whether it's uh, coping with the, the changes that happen, it, it kind of helps with both of those. So looking towards uh, what we need to do for climate and agriculture, uh, perennials should be one of the centerpieces. That's scientist Lee Dahan, lead scientist on the Kernza Domestication Program at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. Thank you so much for joining me today on A Public Affair, Lee. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful to talk with you and also with you, Erica. Erica Schoenberger is a graduate student in agronomy at UW-Madison working on Kernza. Thanks for being here, Erica. Absolutely. It was so nice to talk with you. And thank you for listening out there here to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, Shally Pittman, filling in for producing today. And thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in 
sedition Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions Live and direct becoming never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and supported Live and direct becoming never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and supported